like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I will be looking at Philip K. Dick's 1964 story, Orpheus with Clay Feet. Um, so it's, we're still looking at Dick's stories from 1964, which was his last big uh, production in short stories. He, he would write enough short stories after 1964 to fill a whole volume of the collected stories. Um, so about one-fifth of his stories are still to come, in a sense. But this was the last p- period of time where he really focused on writing short stories. Um, from this point on, the short stories kind of you know, are trickle here and there for, for over about a decade of time. Two decades almost, really, to the end of his life. So he didn't didn't write nearly at the same pace, and nothing like what we saw in the early uh, early to mid nineteen fifties. But still, an impressive uh, presentation of stories in nineteen sixty four. And I like these stories of the nineteen sixties by Dick because they they usually tend to be on the fun side of things, and as serious as his novels could be for the nineteen sixties, his stories um, tended to have a lot of joy in them, a lot of fun in them. And I think that's certainly the case with Orpheus with clay feet which is, is, you know, just a fun idea. And Dick gets to play with his love of music, his love of writing, and, and particularly of, of classical music here. And it's always nice when Dick Dick writes about music because it's something he, he loves so much. I, I don't know if he was a great commentator on music through his writing, but just knowing that he, he liked music so much, it's, it's fun to see what he had to say in his efforts to try to apply kind of science fiction concepts to to his love of love of music okay so um orpheus well if if you don't know the story of of orpheus it's from from greek mythology and it goes something like this now i usually get this from the opera versions i i don't think i've ever read the like the original textual sources where the Orpheus story is in, but I have listened to to the operas, so I have some familiarity with it from that. But the basic story is that Orpheus has and his wife Eurydice are living a happy life, and then Eurydice dies, and he goes down into into his into the underworld to save her, to pull her out, and he is able to because he's a great musician and he's one of the greatest musicians who ever lived he's able to play music to really uh, calm the evil spirits and the demons and things down in the underworld he eventually was able to get to to persephone and and hades right the god of the underworld and his wife persephone he's able to talk to them i think persephone at least in the opera version persephone kind of likes orpheus because he, he was music and he has music and you know persephone's from not the underworld so he kind of brings some joy to her her life in the underworld and anyways the deal they get is yeah i'll let orphe or i'll let eurydice go but you can't look at her until you leave the underworld right and on the way out they're chased by 
demons who maybe aren't as attracted or weren't seduced by his music. And then usually at the last moment, as they're about to leave, he turns to grab her and he sees her. And then she's dragged down to the underworld forever. And then there might be different versions of it. I, I think like in the, the what's it, uh, what's his name? Claudio Verde version of the opera. I think at the end, Apollo comes and kind of saves the day and, and brings brings Eurydice and Orpheus back together. But anyways, that's that's the rough story of, of Orpheus, just from my memory. Um, but okay, but Orpheus with Clay Feet was published in Escapade magazine in 1964. Now, Escapade was an adult magazine. It was one of several that were started in the 19. Uh, 50s and 60s um, so yeah it's I guess it's kind of pornographic for the time I don't know pretty tame stuff from from modern from modern standards but that's what it was he didn't publish it under his name Philip K Dick he published it under the name Jack Dolan so he's again shouting out to his love of music and his love of the music of John Dolan the, the English lute composer you can find Orpheus with clay feet in the Collective Stories of Philip K. Dick, Volume 4, the one that's usually got Minority Report on the cover. The Minority Report, I should say. Minority Report is the movie. The Minority Report is the story. Okay, anyways, let's just jump into the story. It's not long. It won't take me long to talk about this one. So we got this character, Jesse Slade, working in his office. His job is to help his clients avoid military service. So during consultation, Slade will then basically identify a medical or psychological problem. This is really interesting being written in 1964 in a men's magazine, basically promoting or talking about draft dodging. Um, I'm sure that's something a lot of young men were thinking about in 1964. Of, of course, the peak of the Vietnam War would have to be for another four years, but, you know, the draft was in place, certainly. So that's his job. His job is to help, you know, if someone comes in and they, they say, like, you know, here's my life story, and then he'll find some reason to get them to avoid military service. But he's bored with this life and he hopes for something else. And he notices a company called Muse Enterprises and enters it. He's curious about how to escape the, the quote-unquote military service that is his boring life. So he he's trying to help people avoid military service, but he sees his own life as a very boring military service. And it, it's interesting that the reason he sees people want to avoid military service is because of boredom, not because of the threat to their, their life and limb or from some moral reservations. So it's very much like the story we'll look at later called um, uh, We Can Remember For You Wholesale, where you have a man who's bored with his job going into a company hoping to find escape from, from the pressures of life and the boredom of life. He meets with Mr. Manville of Muse Enterprises, and he explains to Mr. Manville, explains to Slade that their service basically allows uncreative people like him to go back in time to a specific moments and then inspire great artists and thinkers. So the adventure he gets to have is because he's never going to be able to create. He's never going to be anything but a boring person. But if he can go back in time, he can then be the inspiration for some great work of art. Um, these people can't create anything of their own, but they will be responsible for creative achievement. Or at least they can tell themselves that. So the idea is like, you want to inspire like, I don't know, the ring cycle. So you go talk to, you go hang out with Wagner in like 1945 and you say, wouldn't it be cool if there was an opera about like, based on Norse mythology, about a ring and how it's stolen from the Rhine, the gold stolen from the Rhine maidens and Odin can be in it. You tell this story and then then you go back in time and you, you, you say, ah, I inspired the ring cycle. 
So it's a little nice play on time travel. It's also a play on just pathetic people who, you know, need to, you know, find one some way to justify their their existence. They can only do it kind of uh, through through the experiences of others, vicariously through artists. So he does decide to go through with this. So he comes back two days later, Slate, I mean, he goes back two days later and he says he wants to inspire Beethoven to write his choral symphony. But he's told that was already done. We, you know, that was like one of the first things taken. Um, so Slade comes back later with a new idea. And this time he wants to inspire the science fiction writer Jack Dolan, who's a major figure in the golden age of science fiction. Slade will then inspire his story, The Father on the Wall, which is one of the greatest stories of the genre, and it launched Dolan's science fiction career. So what we have here is something similar to Water Spider, in which he's playing with this kind of golden age of science fiction and putting it in a science fiction setting, and then using time travel to to play with that. And then he kind of writes himself in in an offhand way because the science fiction writer here is Jack Dowland, who is, of course, Philip K. Dick. You know, and I don't know this Father on the Wall. There's no Philip Dick story called Father on the Wall. So that's it's, it's kind of a playful idea of what writing himself into into the story. So eventually he uses the time shift to go back in time to 1956 in the Nevada desert. He quickly finds Dolan's home in a small town. A woman answers the door and she calls Dolan, who's amazed to have a fan at all. He's only written a few pieces and he's not very well known. So this is like if someone were to visit Phil Dick in 1953 and say, oh, I'm your biggest fan. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? I only wrote a couple pieces and, you know, in horrible magazines. But no, that's what happens. And then, you know, Slade unsubtly begins to tell Dolan that he must shift his writing to science fiction because that's his real skill and where his brilliance will come out. Dolan's not convinced, though. Science fiction, he believes, is a genre for teenagers. And Dolan sends him on his way after a few minutes. So Slade goes back to the present, and he learns that he's failed disastrously. Not, not only did he not inspire Dolan to write science fiction, he actually basically abolished him as a science fiction writer, which is why there is no science fiction named Jack Dolan, except the writer of the, the, the pen name of Philip Dick in the story. It's very much like Water Spider in this way, because what happens in Water Spider is it's Poole Anderson has an idea for a story about FTL travel. And through the time travel machinations, the story is removed from his mind. So he never writes the story in the first place. But Paul Poole Anderson was still a science fiction writer. He just didn't write a particular story that's explored in that one. Here, the whole category of a science fiction writer has been been abolished. So instead of becoming a major science fiction writer, Dolan is only known for one minor science fiction work called Orpheus with Clay Feet, which is a time travel story about a man who tried to convince him to be a science fiction writer. Manfield decides to send Slade back in time then to uninspire some of history's most horrendous tyrants, such as Hitler and Stalin. So the idea then is, if you're so bad at this, if you can't even inspire someone who is destined by fate to be a science fiction writer maybe you can go back and talk to hitler in art school in vienna or something and you know uninspire him from his his mad quests and that, that's the story that, that's all we really got here so um what to say about it well as i you know it does stand nicely alongside water spider both are self-reflective works both see dick trying to look back comically at his own early career uh, in this case, maybe showing that how precarious his choice to go into science fiction writing was. And it's something I think he was very self-conscious of at times, especially maybe in the early 60s, because he had given up writing mainstream fiction. He, Of course, he wrote a lot of science fiction in the 50s, 
then he gave up that up and tried to write mainstream fiction, which is something he always wanted to do. And then it's only in like after The Man in the High Castle that he kind of fully commits to writing science fiction for the rest of the 60s. So it, you can tell he's a little bit self-conscious about it. Um, and about the precarity of his early career, right? In Water Spider, Dick is overshadowed by the greats, and we get this good feeling. We get a good feeling of how younger writers felt about being compared to last generation's greats. In Orpheus with Clay Feet, Dick is playing with the idea of how fragile the choice to even become a science fiction writer was in that time. As we, will know, as we know, Dick wanted to be like a mainstream writer, and he often felt trapped by the science fiction genre. You know, and it's amazing since he writes such great novels, and, but it's because he was forced out of the conventions that he saw around him that he, he broke all those barriers, right? You know, in some senses, that makes some of his works weaker, I think, but it makes other, others of his works strong. I really think when we look at 1964, we see the gamut. We have really, all, they're all think all four, four novels he wrote in that year are great, but they're, they're various degrees of success, I think, as novels, right? I think The Simulacrum is, is held together as well as like The Martian Time Slip. Penultimate Truth has a lot of great ideas, but also it kind of fold, you know, it doesn't hold together quite quite as well. Clans of the Elfane Moon, I think, is stronger. So, you know, but he, he it's he, the way they're, the reason they're this way is because he worked so hard to break free of the conventions of, of the genre. So Jack Dolan in this story is close to what Dick could have been had he been, been bumped just slightly in a different direction. Also notice that in both stories, Philip K. Dick's story is used for filler when a greater author is bumped. In Water Spider, it's Paul Anderson's Nightflyer being replaced with the Mold of Yancey. And here we are reading a, reading a story that's replacing the breakout work of a potentially great science fiction writer, Jack Dolan, right? Because the story we're reading is actually the one work that Jack Dolan writes. Now, again, and now Dick can't get away from this. Funny for someone who doesn't seem to really work much you know i mean he of course he works hard at writing but he doesn't have jobs i mean i think he did in the 50s early 50s before he got it he started becoming a science fiction writer but you know that's that's 10 years ago since he had like a real job but he still can't get away from this feeling this gut feeling over how pointless and brutal work is and he keeps coming back to this it's again it shows up and we can remember for you wholesale but it's again and again in these stories it's just Work is, you know, this hor the horrible nature of work. Uh, for someone who has such fear of automation, it's it's surprising how often he comes back to showing characters with bullshit jobs, meaningless work, just hating their hating their work, hating hating what they have to do. One of the bleakest parts of his vision is this future where there's little hope that we'll find more happiness in the place we spend most of our lives, the workplace. Much of our technology. I mean, if you're a, you're a repairman, you're, you're good to go. Maybe if you run a record store, you're good to go. But I, I can't think of any other professions that Dick seems to praise or think would be valuable. We'll, we'll come back to this, certainly, and, and you know, talk a lot about it when we look at Galactic Pot Healer. Now, much of the, our technology, in this case time travel, will still be used to mitigate some of the most demoralizing parts of our life, right? Here, I'm reminded of the story... Um, was it what's what's it called again a oh, prominent author in prominent author we got this wonderful technology that allows people to teleport anywhere in the universe essentially and then people use it just to go to work right here time travel becomes just a way of, of kind of 
crafting vacations for oneself that they can you know feel important despite having this job which is completely bs so you know with this with the story we should all reread david graper's article uh the phenomenon of, of bullshit jobs you know so it's, it's a good story it's a good it's a good uh article if you haven't read it yet anyways in orpheus with clay fleet feet slade is desperate for something else in his life um, Slade says at one point, we need to escape from the small office and the process of dealing with gold bricking clients whom he had to face day after day. So that's, that's Orpheus with clay feet. Not much more to say about it. Work and the self-reflection on his career, um, and the precarious nature of science fiction writing in, in, in the fifties. So that's it. Um, but a fun story. Um, Good to read. I, I don't really see the connection to, to Orpheus, except you got, got a kind of the artist's journey and the... Well, I guess in this case, the Orpheus with clay feet means you got this great artist who chooses not to write, right? So the clay feet is the symbol of him not moving forward in that, that profession, right? You can't move into the other world if you have clay feet, right? So easily, easily shattered, I guess. You know, you can't can't hold together. And so his career ends before it even begins. So that's that's the meaning there. I, I think it's a nice reference to the Orpheus tale, though, which is always fun to, to look back on. So I guess that does it um, for my look at this short story, Orpheus with Clay Feet. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another story from 1964. I believe it'll be O to be a Um, which is a lot more to say about that one to be honest. Um, but anyways, if you have your own comments about Orpheus with clay feet, uh, the Orpheus story, the what Dick is trying to tell us in this tale, please leave me a comment um, and I'll try to get back to you. Or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. But as always, thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time with another of Philip K. Dick short stories. You will find peace and contentment forever if you